0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Unstructured. Today, I have Otakara Klecki. Please tell me I did okay on the name. You
1: did awesome. Thank you so much. Well, good. Hi.
0: She is my second guest, who is Czechoslovakian. Um, Previous guest, Ladin Juracek, was of descent, but he was actually born here in the United States. But this is an exciting opportunity because Otakara was born in Czechoslovakia and live there all the way through um, and past the Iron Curtain falling. So I really am eager to explore with her what happened with that because I'm the child, a child of the 70s and 80s, and there's my view of the Berlin Wall and the Iron Curtain and the great evil of the Soviet Union, et cetera. But it would be awesome to hear the other side because there's a major change there. How are you doing today, Otakara.
1: Awesome, amazing! Thank you for having me. How are you?
0: I'm great. Great. (laughs) Now, currently, you're an author, correct? Mm -hmm. Correct. Now, I've um, read your book. You have a nonfiction book here, Your Body Whisper, and you have started off uh, a series. I think you're three deep into a a children's series.
1: Yes, I actually I just published the second one uh, in a children's series, so that's Uh, freshly out.
0: Okay. Got my count wrong. I guess I was counting the nonfiction with the other two. Sorry about that. But that's excellent. And I Oh no,
1: don't be sorry. Like that's a good prophecy. I like to hear that. I w I wanna be able to say that that I have third one out.
0: And I understand they're all Amazon bestsellers, which is phenomenal. Thank you. Now I'm gonna spend some time though, um, going into the first book and probably jumping in and out of it. But the first book has a bit of an autobiographical um to it. I understand that you were very, very sick as a, a child.
1: Yes. Yes. It was a kind of a unfortunate things. I had a multiple different things usually wrong with my organ. So I was a child that looked as the first look. Okay. Like to anybody's view, I was just as normal as any, any other child. But um, I had a, a lot of respiratory problems later on. My liver had issues and, oh, the later I had some other issues. So, uh, yes, unfortunately, I did not have the most typical childhood because I was bound to a lot of restrictions because of my health.
0: Yeah, I can see where the liver would be um, especially a concern because if it's breaking down their problems, you're not filtering out toxins, correct?
1: That's true. Yes, exactly. I, um, I have uh, hyperbilirubinemia. I don't know if I said it right for uh, in English, but uh, yeah, basically, um, my liver wasn't cleaning out broken down white cells, so uh, I would turn yellow and I look like I had hepatitis. And um, basically, what was helping me, this was a good thing for a child, was I was I had to be on an extremely strict diet. But the one thing I had to have in my diet, and I had to have it often, was sugar. So I very soon became a huge sugar addict because the sugar was the only thing—the pure glucose—that was allowing my liver to function in a way to to process the uh to, to process the toxins. So uh, if I didn't eat or if I didn't have like sugar enough, um, then I would start like throwing up and had a hard time stopping at, at this point. So
0: um, no, was that all sugars or? or- or was it more specifically like, you know, there's fructose, gluten, glucose, et cetera?
1: Glucose, glucose. So I did have like at home, I would have like the pure glucose. If it went really too far, then they would have to take me to the doctors and they would just have to give me glucose in an IV to stop because once my stomach got upset, it was really hard to get anything in my bloodstream because I was, const- if I would eat some glucose and I would throw throw up because that's what, when the liver went bad, was causing me then it would, was re- sometimes it was really hard to kind of come out of this vicious cycle. So, but um, I've learned to live with that as a kid. And uh, thank, thank God today I don't have any of that, right. any of that problems anymore. So,
0: Okay, so you did get through all of them. That's interesting. Now, d- did you get through them essentially, you would say, by diet?
1: Um, I would not call it... By diet, I would say more by my mental need of um, of not wanting to have this issue. The diet was there in place. I had to keep on the diet. And at the beginning, it had to be extremely, extremely strong.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The, the, the first years when uh, this liver disorder came into play in my life, was hard because i i literally had like there were like five meals that didn't cause me any issues so it was i was very restricted on whatever i could eat because i couldn't have anything that had any kind of fat in it like whatsoever in in the fragments and you would be surprised like how many things actually contain fat oh sure from bread from you know so many things even even pears (laughs) i could not have Hmm. so um there was very, f- I was very limited. So the diet had to be there in place. And without the diet, uh, I would not get where I am. But it was not the diet that saved me, okay. if that makes sense.
0: Okay. So I was thinking that the diet, by being very, very strict, it allowed your liver, for example, to maybe heal up on its own to get strong enough to actually start to function, to filter out toxins, things like that etc but obviously the mental things i i know you um i think you used to sneak exercise in somehow
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah because when i got to uh, i wasn't allowed to do pe classes when i was at school and uh, when i went to high school i was put into like a preparatory school like boarding schools which was much more it's it's a little different than when like people think of it here to be in Europe, it's much more it's more common than here to end up when you're when you're in a high school to end up in a boarding school um, than it is in the United States because the high schools are specific. It's a different system. It's a definitely different educational system. Mm. So uh, anyway, so I was away. The point was that I was away from my parents and the doctors from like the immediate. Uh, hovering helicopter parents or most more like helicopter mom who would like make sure that I was okay and and whatever I ate and that I would not get tired and I wouldn't exercise. And I always wanted to dance and that was like my big thing. So when I went to high school, I um, started like some course and that year was the first year and uh, the owner of the dance company had a course that led one of his students and he said that he's going to come back at the end of the year and he's going to pick up one of the the girls who was in that course and that she could join the dance company and so Mm -hmm. I committed to myself that I would be the one who would be picked up at the end of the year and thus catch up to all of these who were training since they were little girls and Mm -hmm. I was no little and I did not train so I spent and because I was in a boarding school I didn't have these parents at home. So like, instead of studying in the afternoon, I would be like stretching myself and trying to make mm-hmm. splits. And, and so I pushed my, I've learned to push myself just far enough that something would not happen. Like So I was constantly, I started pushing the limits. Plus mm-hmm. you become a teenager, you know, like you go to the high school, obviously your natural job is to push your limits, mm-hmm. is to rebel. So I I knew if I go too far I'm gonna faint so I always went only that far that I could like help myself out of it and I started pushing these limits and I started working on pushing these limits and so that was the that was the very beginning of how I approached you know my health
0: interesting have you um ever read Anders Ericsson No. What I think you actually were doing, and you probably didn't know it at the time, is what's called deliberate practice. Um, Malcolm Gladwell made it a popular thing with the uh, 10,000 hour rule, quote unquote. But what he didn't do as well, conveying was the idea of, you know, if you practice for 10,000 hours, you'll become an expert. And it really isn't that you practice for 10,000 hours. What you described is deliberate practice, which is you practice in an extremely focused, Dedicated way on your weaknesses or things that you're trying to overcome, like a particular move to the point where it's always difficult, where you're always stretching just a little bit, trying to get to that next thing versus just doing what you're good at.
1: That's true. That's true. I was definitely pushing. And I knew because I had a goal in mind, I had like, I wanted to be at the end of the year, I wanted to be the one girl that he would pick out out of that. And he did. He did. I, made okay. it.
0: So I was waiting for that.
1: He did. I made it. So it was, it was awesome. It's like, I'm, I'm good at, if I like set myself some goal in mind of the final one, that like, that's, that's what it is. And I kind of tend to overlook the obstacles. And all I see is the, the final thing and the obstacles they come. And I try to crawl through them as they come. So I don't really focus. Um, every time, every time I look at something, Whenever I want some goal in the end, I always overlook the obstacles. The obstacles are always bigger than I thought.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But somehow, if you don't pay that much attention to them, somehow you make it across, usually.
0: Yeah, or you just think about the next step and don't worry about the obstacle because it's like climbing a mountain. Well, you're not jumping to the top of the mountain. You're climbing a few feet and then a few more feet and then a few more feet. And before long, you're up 100 feet. Mm-hmm. Um, should I? It, it does make sense to kind of be uh, extremely self-confident and maybe ignore things. Now, what's really interesting, though, is you're mentioning boarding school, things like that. And you were in Czechoslovakia as a child mm-hmm. until, um, I guess, you know, early teens. It was um, behind the Iron Curtain, as we would call it, or, you know, in the communist mm-hmm. society. What was life like then?
1: Okay yeah that was still czechoslovakia i'll just still say that when i was in in early teens also the czech and slovakia separated so i'm from czech republic i speak czech Slovakians speak slovak so i'm from the czech part so today it's just the czech republic but what was it like um just like any i would say i had just the normal well other than like being sick but that had nothing to really to do with the fact where i was from um to me, it was nothing really bad. I think a lot of people have an idea that uh, we grew up, at least in Czechoslovakia. I mean, I was never, I never even visited Soviet Union, so I don't know how it was there or how were other countries, because um, even in, behind the Iron Curtain, all of these communistic countries had slightly different uh, lifestyle and slightly different things were available to them. So I actually, for example, remember that in the fifth, after the fifth grade, I went to a camp where they pick up like the kids who learn well Russian at school. And we were together with Russian kids and it was a camp where we should practice Russian. <laughs> my mom got me somewhere where I had more school over the summer. and uh, And so I remember the Russian kids there and what they had and it was just bizarre. I remember this like girl had wearing shoes. They were like three sizes too big for her feet. And I just could wow. not grasp. Why would she have three sizes too big shoes? And it was because the shoes were, I guess, maybe harder to get or more expensive or, you know, hmm. or, or there was some issue with that. So they would like have shoes so much ahead of her age to last her that many years. Wow. And that was just something that was like, utterly bizarre i've never seen anything like it so i never grew up in a culture that would have that and i have people who think that like we were waiting in line for meat or something and i'm like no we had everything the only thing we did not have it's like yeah you went to the store and because all the products were owned by the government you would have a how you have a whole milk and you had a two percent and that were your choices that's it mm-hmm. you didn't have milks from that company that company that company you could not buy um Oatmeal from 50 different brands, you wouldn't have all these brands, but you still had, you could still buy oatmeal, you could still buy milk, you could still buy whatever you wanted mm-hmm. to buy. It's just that communism really didn't have a competitor. So everything was provided by one, one single uh, big nursing mama mm-hmm. you know, company, basically. And everybody was employed by the government. Everybody had a job. So for a lot of ways, I think for a lot of people, this was a much easier lifestyle because you didn't have the stress of so many choices. You didn't have a stress of, uh, making sure you have a job. You can feed your child. Mm -hmm. You grew up, you get married, you were given apartment. Everybody who was 18 would get married. So they would get apartments so they could run away from parents, you know? So in a way the the big communism was like a nursing mother who would just like, as long as you play along, right. Mm -hmm. Um, your life was taken care of, was taken care of. You would have a mediocre life. It's not like if you were a hardcore entrepreneur, so mm. you could not, you know, you could not work harder and make more. You were just stuck in the same. And actually the people who would make slightly more money were usually labor people and these were celebrated. So universities were free to study. They would give a free accommodation to the university students Mm-hmm. Um, free education, but also because you got all these freebies to get yourself educated, mm-hmm. people with with university degrees were making less money than those who went into labor force right away.
0: Mm, that makes sense. I know that there's a lot of um, cab drivers in Cuba who are doctors.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I could see that.
0: And um, I don't know if this is true, but I I've, I've met a couple of Russians who talked about the richest people in Russia that he knew of were the grocers. Because they would be selling out the back door.
1: Oh, during communism. You yes, mean. yes. Yeah, anyone, anyone. That's true. That was true even in communism in tech. I don't know if they were rich, uh, but... Uh, whenever you were the person who was selling, who was in charge of the store and unless like in a big cities, usually stores where you had like a person, you know, behind like reception desk and you would ask what you want and they would find it for you. So it's not like you walk behind us and pick stuff up yourself mm. unless of like few bigger malls in a big cities. But these were not like the typical standards. So the typical standard was like you went to the store
2: mm-hmm.
1: that actually was a tiny, tiny space in front and there would be a, reception there will be person selling and you'll tell them what they, what you want and you know if and so if they got like for example some fabric that people wanted to use like jeans fabric right mm-hmm. that would never make it to the regular people because the moment they got in a store um they would put it under the counter we call this under counter under the counter merchandise mm-hmm. And you know she would call up her friends, hey because she would only get so much of it, and she would call up her friends, you know we go to some jeans fabric, You wanna you know you wanna sew your kids up some pants or something whatever, and then they would come and get it, and sometimes they would pay more money for this, so they would make a little money on a on a side and um, I remember my friend, her father worked in a butcher shop, and she always said like also oh, he just keeps like a slice of a ham on her side that she always has ham. And I was always like, jealous. I'm like, you get like all the good ham. That's mm-hmm. expensive because, and, and she said it, she admitted it herself that like, he's like, you know, he just like puts the weight a little bigger. There. So people were, people were definitely um, pushing whatever, whatever they could, whatever they could slice out something for themselves. They did.
0: Cool. It's it sounds, not the best thing. Yeah. Well, that's true. It sounds like though, Perhaps it was better in Czechoslovakia. That maybe because you were farther away. Yep. You know, am am I incorrect in that? Like the closer you got to Moscow, maybe you get worse shoes. But Czechoslovakia, maybe was a little bit more independent.
1: We were quite far away. We are we were we are the most western country. We were you know our neighbors on uh, north were Polish. It's Poland who actually was communist too. But at the west we had Germany. South of us, we had Austria, and then from Slovakia tail end, that's not even our neighbors anymore to us, were was Hungary, who was communistic, but Hungary was actually very... Uh, they had it even better than we do, I think. The Hungary did really well. So for a lot of people, I think for a lot of people and a lot of mentality of the people, if you think about there were no homeless people, there were no drug addicts, there were no mm-hmm. people without jobs... All these things were covered. It's just that like you kind of had to, you were forced to follow the line. And if you fell out of the line, if you ended up taking drugs, they would pull you out of the, any kind of public eye institutionalize you somewhere and you'll be gone. Nobody would see it. Oh really? Everything everybody had to see was perfect. Yeah. Mm. Um, being unemployed was illegal. Hmm. So Unless you were wife, woman at home, like every woman, uh, and it's still, we still do have it. This was like one of the things we still have uh, since then. And it's a good thing from the communism is that like when you have a baby born, um, you, as a woman, you can stay at pay leave and government pays leave for two years for you. So you can stay two years at home. Hmm.
0: Okay.
1: So like, this was like something, the maternity leave, like there were some exceptions to it, hmm. but other than that, you had to have a job.
0: Okay. Well, that's interesting to know. Now, the cool thing is, you lived through the other side mm-hmm. where all of a sudden it's no longer communist. Now, that to me seems like a radical change, but was it actually very subtle and you hardly noticed anything or was it huge?
1: It was huge. It was, I mean, I lived in a tiny village and even there, like everything because. At the beginning, they tried to, when it happened, like the very first days, um, I remember because my dad used to listen to the Radio Free Europe, which was the illegal radio station. He kind of, and we lived mm-hmm. close enough to Austrian borders that we had a chance to have that. And and also because we live, lived close enough to Austrian border, we uh, were able to catch Austrian TV on our TV mm. station. So I remember we saw, I remember very vividly when, you know, the revolution happened on, um, the Velvet Revolution happened on... Um, November 17, 1989. And um, at that time, the TV was still run by communists. So they were not showing anything, mm. you know, uh, like that day, but the Austrian TV was all covering it. Mm. And so we were watching it at home on Austrian TV in German. And my dad's listening to uh, Radio Free Europe, and it took about two days before it, like before, finally they started broadcasting it. Before they took over broadcast uh, station, they took over the Radio Free Europe. They they broadcasted it on a regular media. So um, a lot of uh, I was at a time ending middle school, so I was not. Uh, I don't think I was that much capable of. Forcing all the consequences of 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 actually comprehending everything that was happening at that time,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but um, we were definitely even my class like at school we were no longer like the Russian the teachers who were teaching us Russian classes they were no longer knowing what to do we didn't do anything any, anymore mm-hmm. uh, history class we didn't do anything anymore because we didn't know how we're gonna teach the history so. Um, Everybody was just in a huge, like, and we, all we wanted to do, even in middle school, all we wanted to do in eighth grade, we just wanted to debate about it. And, hmm. um, I remember we had, a, a the principal of our school or the vice principal, he was like, oh, we should write a letter to like support communists or something. And my mom was a teacher at a school. So, so like, this was the, what I, my mom came home with. And, and she said like, so he was like the, the principal and that he wanted to like, well, you wouldn't get to the principal position unless you were a heavy duty communist. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not like it was, uh, you would get yourself uh, the more you, um,
0: uh, party man. Get,
1: um, well, I don't, I don't want to say a bad word here. So, um, the more of you were willing to be pleasing the communists, the better job you yes. were able to get. Eventually. It
0: would be known as a party man.
1: Right. Right. So anyway, so the principal wanted to support it. And like the other teachers, she goes like, my sons are in a revolution. Like they are all because all the university kids, they went to Prague. They just flooded Prague and everybody went on strike. And, and this started with the university students. And so, so the teachers were like, no way I have my kids there. I have people in my family there. There is no way I'm going to like stand on the side of supporting this. So like people were like, no. We're for it we We weren us gone, so it was extremely exciting time. And so I pretty much my whole eighth grade, we barely did anything at school. <laughs> and the most beautiful thing afterward was to start a high school in uh, in an environment where teachers felt like new horizons are coming, and we're gonna live in a place where if you want to start your own company. Mm -hmm. and live, do something for yourself, you can. So it was, it was very exciting. It was very exciting times.
0: That's cool. So you really um, embrace the entrepreneurial um, spirit or ideas as a culture?
1: Yes. Yes. Some people, you know, some people, because it was hard. The thing is that uh, you, the, the spirit, in this country it runs a little different and because you can also have people who can teach you it existed Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we didn't have anybody who taught you nor it was in our culture you if you were in age you would want to start your own business you usually had parents who lived through much scarier era and going like you know be careful and Mm -hmm. don't do that so it was something that um it was exciting for a lot of people, but it was really hard. Really hard because there was no there was no blueprint for a lot of people. And then they were people who were sneaky and you know ex-communists who made tons of money and we call them they changed their code. They changed the code of the communist person to change the code to somebody else, and they did not have the best of the characters. And unfortunately, a lot of these people of these people made it really big. These people who really lacked the better character to to have to be a good businessman so the ethics were still somewhere else Mm -hmm. and and even till it's it's definitely getting better a lot better now because it's been so long and um generation the whole new generation exactly the whole new generation had a chance to grow up in but still like for the first decade or a couple of decades you could have your own store and you would have an employee a person who would be selling there and while in america you have people smiling and saying like how can i help you
2: mm-hmm. in
1: czech you still had an attitude like what do you bother me i'm here to have a job like you know like <laughs> you would say bye bye kind of thing right. and, uh, and so then they come in the companies and i had a friend who she was uh, like that was her job. She would be at the stores and she started working at a gas station at OMV, one of the big, you know, the German gas stations. And, and she was like, and they're teaching us, like, we have to say, have a nice trip at the end whenever somebody <laughs> pays, we have to, and they're like, they have people who come like undercover in a store in a, at the gas station to tell us to check whether we'd say it or no. So like they were literally coming in companies who were teaching people, um, uh, some kind of manners when it comes to the job
0: hmm. where are those companies coming from
1: um everywhere from europe. the west oh yeah of course okay. america western europe japan well everybody all of a sudden flooded like the, the gates open and people didn't have the money to start companies but the market was open for companies so there was like the whole huge things There was an unfortunate thing a lot of stuff got sold out and uh, basically if you think about it government uh the communist government owned and its own anything and everything so, right and uh, then you have these big factories mm-hmm. that used to belong to communists but who right. do they belong to after
0: right that's my question and, and uh, what about your house um how did or you know the housing you said that everybody was given an apartment or everyone was given a house um no, how no, did no. that how, break down
1: Okay. The apartments, yes. And the housing, usually people build. So like I grew up in a house that my father built. So people build houses. It was a, especially like outside of the cities, if you were in a village, people have still till this day big houses. It's like the big thing. You bought yourself a land and Mm -hmm. the whole family worked and it's, it's a whole culturally different things. And, you know, and everybody would build a house or the parents would give you house and you will take care of the parents. Um, this whole, this whole system of housing, it's kind of culturally differently. S-
0: so country and city is different is what you're saying? A lot,
1: a lot. But in a city, people would usually have apartment and then they would have like a weekend house. That's a very typical Czech things. So every weekend they drive off like whatever, half mm. an hour drive outside of their city where they have like some small house where they spend their weekends. Um it it was like the pride to get on the end. You would start off, you could start with an apartment very easily, but a lot of times the parents would give you a house or they would like build you a house. Okay. It's more of like a show of things like you you had to have it, you know, okay. so it was the, one of the pride points.
0: That's fascinating. So then the businesses essentially once were owned by the government, but now that government's not there. That's- was that, that, were foreign investors? I, I have read that, like, a, a lot of foreign investors went into, I, I know specifically Russia. I don't know as much about Czechoslovakia or Czech Republic now. Um, did they wind up buying up factories? And a, as an example, I guess there's one gentleman who bought up a whole lot of factories in Russia because they did some sort of chit where all the workers had a small percentage of, factory and the workers are going what am i gonna do with this piece of paper i need to feed my family so the american this in this case would come in and say oh here's 40 bucks or here's 100 bucks and just mm-hmm. bought up all the paper and was buying up like uh, companies that really were probably worth half a billion dollars for like 40 million
1: yes yes so that's a that's a that's a really good question. Um, So with housing, I will, I will answer both. I will finish the housing with the apartments with the apartment buildings. A lot of times the, the the people who live in those apartments in a building, they were given the options to buy the entire building and form sort of a co-op to Mm. take care of the building and then like pay a little bit of money. So part of the housing went into this where people managed to put together enough uh, people to buy out the entire building together as a as a unit and so part of the houses ended up like that some of the housing stayed uh, in cities for cities, so the city actually owned them and were able to still give people lower rent options because okay. all of a sudden the rent was so low it was not really anything and so they had to like slowly start building the Mm -hmm. paying the actual value because this was something that was not used to the people. Then later on, the cities would be buying each individual apartments. So it would be more like a condo. Mm -hmm. So there was this co-ops or these separately sold condos and some of the housing state to, uh, to the, to the city. And you had an option. And this is like, for example, what I did was that I bought an entire, apartment building with stores because nobody else in a, in a building wanted it pretty much in the middle of the Prague. Hmm. So that was a, that was my big score out nice. of that. But um, what happened with the companies was that a lot of times these companies were divided and people, everybody in a Czech Republic was given um, like uh, shares Mm-hmm. And every person, every citizen would have a certain amount of share. So it was the set for every person. And just like you said, these people had no clue what to do with them. Mm-hmm. So they kind of could go up on market with it and play with that, which some of the people did. Mm-hmm. Then they formed then they would form some companies who would handle this for you. And then for some people, and this was a. Uh, the richest Czech person did this, who ended up being the richest person of the Czech. And he ended up being like one of the top. He made it in like the top 100 the richest people or the top 10 richest mm-hmm. people in the world. And, and it, was, it was a huge, huge deal. What he did, he offered 10,000 crowns, which I don't know how much it was worth back then. Today it would be $400, but it was back in, you know, nineteen ninety. Uh, something maybe 1991 or something uh when all this was happening so it it was a huge money at that time it was a probably equivalent of i would say it had to be equivalent of like three average monthly paychecks Mm, okay so it was it was it was not huge but it was big enough and he no question asked gave every person who gave up his any, whatever he had his shares, he would pay him this money
2: mm-hmm.
1: and he made ton of money and he actually delivered on his promise. He did, he used it up kind of not the best way. So there was like some huge issue and I believe he, and en- he ended up running off to like Bahamas or something. <laughs> like, uh, so it, it, it was a, it was a huge deal, but, um, but, um, uh, this is how it kind of functions. So, some people had a chance to get into it. Some people sold it to him. And then there were some other foreign companies who came from the West who were promising the money or managing those shares. Mm-hmm. And so, kind of the whole thing kind of withered out with that. A lot of money stolen. This was, there was a huge, there was definitely one of our uh, darker side of that Mm -hmm. because this ended up being huge mob deals on the end
0: i was going to say that also the under the counter stuff we were talking about earlier in the grocery store and things like that a lot of that was black market organized crime related it seems like especially again in russia the oligarchs or crime figures seem to step in like when the government went out it was like all of a sudden the mob came in Was it similar there?
1: I don't want to compare us to Russia at all. We don't have this type of um, male mentality. Okay. You know, there would be like few. I'm not saying they weren't a lot, but, you know, Czech people, we are much more like, we are sneaky, we're smart, we steal a lot. (laughs) You come to Czech Republic, you are going to... You you are you have a good chance of getting robbed, but not with guns in your head. Nobody's gonna like m- mob you. It's 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 decently safe. We we just outsmart people. So okay. so the stealing it's it's different. I just just yesterday I listened to some interview of a Czech American lady when she was visiting Czech Republic, and she was she was saying how she was teaching this to her husband, and she said like I have to teach him that here people rob you without a gun. It's like mm-hmm. I gave him you know, thousand crones, which was like, uh, which is, I don't know, like $40 and, and I, and to buy some street food. And she said, and he comes back with, you know, like 10 bucks. So he paid 30 bucks for something that was worth $2. (laughs) And he just like, he just didn't expect that they would not give him a correct change. It was like, I just have to teach him that like you got to watch out for yourself into in a regular life situation. It's not, um, I'm not saying it's perfectly safe but generally it's right. not it's it's not on a level of like what i hear and i've never been to russia and i've never actually been to any kind of uh, ex-soviet union country, so i can't really compare but we do have a huge our huge biggest amount of um immigrants who come to work are ukrainians so i talked mm. to a lot of ukrainians there in czech republic i met a lot of russians there and so from what i here, it's nothing like that, and it's never been anything like that to even compare it to remotely to any ex-Soviet Union country.
0: That's cool. We're, wasn't, um, wasn't that the Kingdom of Bohemia back in the day?
1: It was. It was a long, uh, long... Well, actually, not that long. We had a, the Bohemian Kingdom, you know, started... Way back we started forming any kind of from like ninth century started to form the first um like counties with counts, they were not kings yet back then yet, and uh um until 1212. In the uh, 13th century, 1212 was the first time when we had a uh, first hereditary kings. There was mm-hmm. a license written where we had a hereditary kings, and the kingdoms were expanding and shrinking, expanding and shrinking. Um, depending how they fought, married. Uh, Mm. Eventually our king's um, lost son and had only a daughter. So she married into the Austrian monarchy and then we became the part of like the grand Austria and uh, uh, Hungary, Hungarian Mm, monarchy. And this ended in 1918 after the First World War. So the monarchy ended, ended at the end of the one hundred years ago. Yeah. 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 About a hundred years, so, years ago. So culturally
0: speaking, you could be very, very different than Russia. I
1: mean, yes. Very, yes. Very, very never, we really didn't. Us. We had, even in our lands, we had like Austria, we had Hungary. We, and at one point we spent huge to the, to the seas. We, our, one of our Kings was a King of uh, Spain at the same time. So we had much more Western culture, Italy, as a part of our culture for a lot of, lot of sanctuary. So it's very true. We did not have, we do not have much of, actually, even with Slovakia, we don't have that much of a history as a Czech Hmm. people. Okay, that's cool.
0: I know that I'd like to visit Prague sometime. The architecture and the buildings look like they're gorgeous, you know, like just another period of time that would be awesome to look at visually.
1: Absolutely. It's about 12 centuries worth of architecture you have there. And, uh, unlike any other city mm. in, uh, any other city in Europe, um, it's actually original because the thing was that, uh, Hitler during the mm. Prague was very much saved from every kind of issues it could have. Like it never burned down like Paris, the entire Paris burned down twice. Yeah. So a lot of things that look old are a lot of times rebuilt of the old stuff. They're actually right. not old. Then during the wars, they were bombing, and then like then there was a Hitler, and it was the biggest one it was the Second World War, where everyone was bombing Germany and Italy for being you know the Nazis. The mm. Nazis were bombing everyone else. So everybody, the entire Europe collapsed. But Czech Republic was fighting against Hitler. But Hitler wanted to move Prague. He absolutely loved Prague. So he put mm. a complete ban on bombing or doing anything to Prague. He actually was rebuilding the Prague. He was putting money in it and he was rebuilding the Prague. And wow. so the only bomb that ever was dropped on Prague was dropped on Prague two days after war ended by Americans who mistaked, <laughs> Of course. This is a true story. Who mistaken <laughs> Prague for Berlin and thought the war was still going on.
0: Of course, and it had to be us. It just had to be. But uh, thanks, we met well.
1: (laughs) I don't know if they were if they were trying to hit a human being. All they did was in one park they hit a statue. So, like, except of the one single statue, um, nothing really suffered. (laughs) So. So it actually, Prague really good. The only thing what was more of suffering of these historical values was these 40 years of communism where communists uh, took a lot of castles and used them as, like, storage places mm. or made schools out of them, and they didn't take care of them. So a lot of it sort of, like, went down, but, like, actually... Nothing was destroyed. So, and this is what makes Prague unique to any other city in Europe. You cannot see what you can see, the buildings you can see next to each other, you will not see anywhere else. Even if you think you're seeing them, you're just seeing the rebuilded stuff. You actually don't have the, the breath, you know, it's, it's a difference like a real flower and a plastic flower that looks real.
0: So what is the exchange rate like other than uh, not giving me back change? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well we still have I'm very proud we are part of the EU, but I'm very proud we keep our own currency and most Czech people are happy to keep the, the currencies uh, so the currency is crown. Mm-hmm. Like the crown the king puts on his head and it's a little over twenty crowns to a dollar. So it's actually very easy to, you know, when you get a hundred crown uh bill, it's four a dollar, it's rough it's oh five dollars now it's changing, so it's roughly about five dollars. A little less than five dollars so and if you go there it it used to be very inexpensive people have it as inexpensive place to visit and it's still to some ways is if you know where and how to get by Mm -hmm. there but i would say in it depends on what you like eating out it's cheaper there than it's in united states but if Mm -hmm. you want to buy yourself shoes they are more expensive there than they are here So it just depends on the product. I think it all evens itself out. It's still a pretty inexpensive place to go visit. And I believe Prague, it's like number seven in the most popular cities in the entire world to visit.
0: Oh, awesome. Awesome. That's uh, whetting my appetite even more. Okay. I probably took you too far down the uh, tourist communist path, but it is something I'm genuinely curious about. and. I really like getting filled in and getting actual information because all I know is what I read or what I'm fed from media and word of mouth, things like that. And let's move on to your book, your original book, um, Hear Your Body Whisper. Now, the thesis of that was essentially that you healed yourself and everybody else could... I guess you'd call it find a homeostasis on their own if they listen to their own body. Would that be fair?
1: Yes, that sounds that sounds pretty good. That sounds pretty good. Yes. If we just get into a little more into, into our bodies and change the perspective, how we see our body and how we communicate with it, we can definitely come to a point of much bigger peace with that and a huge thing in my book it's also that uh as much as i'm definitely not telling anybody not to listen to the doctor Mm
2: -hmm.
1: but uh no doctor nor any of your homeopathic doctor or shaman or a psychic or whoever you go to visit if you're going to a secondary person you are not you. you the the closest and the truest answer to your problem is within yourself and you should first uh, you should first look after the problem yourself before you seek anyone else's help and that's yeah, kind yeah. of the, that's kind of the thing because a lot of times I think we tend to and and I know it from when I was a kid uh, we put our health into some it's it's typical we're absolutely fed this that we put our health become we, we have issue and we go to the doctor because we think the doctor knows better than we do, mm-hmm. and it's it's nothing like really wrong. Like we just do it. We're programmed. We're taught since we were little babies. When your mother they send you to check up your baby to a baby doctor sure. and and everything. So we form this habit, this habitual giving up of our health to someone else. That mm-hmm. we and we say like we we think that we still have. So much control, but we really don't. We still inside us we have this fear that if I don't listen to this person, I might be wrong.
0: Appeal to authority. And a lot of that is um Western medicine as a whole. Because Western medicine and its expert at it is very much a break-fix situation. You go in, you're broken, here's a fix. And we're taught to go to the doctor for a fix. Um, I think that what you're Teaching the book is probably closer to more of a Eastern medicine philosophy of first you spend quite a lot of time. I interpret as uh, helping find a baseline, like get everything out of the way to even know what our body sounds like or feels like, because really we, we're not really that well in touch with ourselves.
1: That's true. Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah. We need to, um, understand what our body even is you know that uh i a lot of times i like to look at the body as a sort of a farm that we farm as a people because um uh, 90% of our cells are not human cells are like bacterial cells and viral cells and so 90% the only thing the re- the only reason you look in a mirror and you see you Eric it's mm-hmm. because your cells are bigger than the other cells, but only 10% of the cells are actually human. 90% aren't. So the moment you actually realize that when you look at yourself, it's not human, it's pretty much alien, or pretty much most mm-hmm. of it. All you are is just this farm that farms all these other creatures. And you start to approach it, that body as such. And that's kind of how I approach it. I just approach it as a different entity. And I, when I'm in charge, I'm the farmer. So like I have the actual biggest responsibilities. There's like 300 billion uh, creatures crawling inside on on top of my skin, inside of my guts, everywhere that uh, take out vitamins. My body cannot even use the vitamins; can even utilize them. We need these guys to utilize vitamins to to breathe, to help us breathe, to build antibodies, to fight of, Uh, Infections. So when you like get in this mentality of being a good farmer to your body, A, because you can look at it objectively, it's much easier to love. As we, it's easier for us to love our child, and a lot of times to love our own selves. Mm -hmm. So it's much easier to look at it and like kind of give up that um, you should. Like, look at your look in a mirror or or like being upset at your body for something. The only reason you are here and you are alive is because your body is not giving up on you. Yet, a lot of times we give up on our own body. We are upset with our own body. The body does always, no matter what, no matter in whatever shape, health, body shape, physical shape the person is, the body does the best it can at that moment. And when you take the responsibility as I am the farmer of this body and it's my job to give them the best condition to give all these creatures, the best condition to create the best body. The moment you take that responsibility, everything in your health starts to change.
0: Um, That brings me to a concern. Um, One, I will admit that it could be taken as a creepy thing that you're really a host to a bunch of alien creatures. I know it means well, well, but, um, there is that kind of scary um, element of it. But do you have concerns about antibiotics? Because that's something that I think about, and we are killing a lot of these things on our skin, thinking that they're all bad, and they really may be there to help us.
1: Yes, the antibiotics definitely. They kill everything. they um, I'm not 100% percent anti antibiotics because there are situations in which the bad guys are stronger than the good guys and then might come the situation when you do absolutely need to -hmm. take it so i'm not 100 against i'm not like super but i would definitely say that's like the last that's the last place i would always support my guys to fight the bad guys
0: how about like antibacterial soaps
1: you know, the truth is the difference between antibacterial soap and regular soap is that antibacterial soap kills uh, kills the bacteria on your hands on touch. The regular soaps washes the bacteria off, so you just mm. drop it down the drain. So, actual, uh, I saw a t- um, doctor, medical doctor, talk on it, and that's what she pretty much said. So she said if you, it, it on the end, it has the same effect. You should keep your hands clean because you constantly collect stuff, and your skin has enough stuff that all. If you're washing just the palm of your hands um, Mm. that's okay because you're not killing all your entire fauna of everything else that you know lives on your body but uh, there are definitely theories that they say like if you were to take five showers a day then you're not serving really well to your body because you would be washing off the good guys
0: right well there's some arguments that say that um you shouldn't wash your hair every day and things like that too You know rinsing it is fine that always shampooing it out i don't know all of it i haven't gone deep into it i know that there are differing views on some of it
1: i'm definitely not going extreme anywhere i'm not extremist in in any kind of ways i think that um if we are in touch with our own body you soon would know yourself what suits you the best
0: okay and moving to later on you spend a, a good deal of time talking about meditation And you admit in part of it that you had a very difficult time with medication, Oh, not medication, meditation. You might have problems with medication too, but anyway, with meditation um, throughout a lot of your life. Now, I think that's actually pretty common. I know that I do it and I get caught up in my head. What I have a habit of doing is napping We're listening to like binaural um, beats audio or whatever to kind of cheat and see if I get into the the right waves. Could you describe the feeling that someone would have when they are actually meditating because that may help people say, "Oh well, I really am meditating okay, that's normal
1: it's to me it's a start it was hard and and it is easier or harder. to depends on which person. Usually it's harder on a person who needs it more than the one for whom it is easier, sadly. But I find guided meditations to be much easier because it's easier to follow the voice than try to be like empty minded. Mm. And uh, the best way and probably the best place I can get into the deepest meditation is now I love the age we live in. Is if I go to the flow tank and the floating tank, mm-hmm. uh, they, um, you take the, all that it's the sensory deprivation tank where you're mm-hmm. all in the dark and no sound or anything. So that actually allows me to truly block out everything else outside and kind of sink in with my own mind. And, um, I would say if you really have the chance to get deep into meditation, you are extremely aware of now of the moment of of what is. Okay. you are aware of everything and even when you come out of the meditation that's even it's even more it's stronger after the meditation ends because mm-hmm. then uh, you are super aware of the trees, the smell of the air, the chirping of the critters in the grass and the birds and that overpowers any of your problems that might come later on or were there an hour ago like you are just involved in now and this moment of being in a now in that true now moment Mm
2: -hmm.
1: that's the time when you are listening to whatever is within you what is in your body and you are able to because you are able to process everything around you you are able to process what is going on within you so if you're having some place where it's just the very beginning of some problem Mm -hmm. um, you will feel it at that moment you will all of a sudden be in tuned in everything what's going on in your body you will you will know whether your chest feels heavy or there might be somewhere some kind of issue so these things just kind of come up to the surface
0: that makes sense. So what you're saying then is you're not um, floating off to La La Land. You're actually hyper aware or very, very present.
1: Yes. Yes,
0: exactly. Okay. That may be maybe that's it, because I've always kind of had the impression that was given that when you're meditating, you're off in the clouds and everything's free. And it's almost a thoughtlessness. You're describing the opposite. So maybe that's good. So being up in your head is not necessarily a bad thing.
1: No, the, it, uh, the problem is that you start thinking of stuff that are not now. If you keep focusing mm. on your breath, you keep focusing on how you breathe. That's how you get into meditations, actually truly focusing on now or on what's happening. The problem mm. is that we have issues that in our head, we just start to our thoughts are taking us away from now. And so it Mm -hmm. is, it's definitely the state of hyper awareness and a lot of meditations, um, you know, a lot of Buddhist monks, they meditate completely with eyes open and that's the entire purpose is to try to go, you know, go in a deep forest and sit down by the river, stare at the river and try to keep your mind empty of things you may think about, but keep it fully aware, just allowing it to be open that it can be saturated by everything that's going on around you. And this is best to do it in the environment where um, you have some good environment, when you have like some good natural environment, heavy nature. Or if you do it in a bed and you try to sink, like in my case with the body, you try to really sink inside the body. So you're trying to be hyper aware of what's going on inside your body at that moment.
0: Oh, very cool. Now you've also given the impression that you can use meditation to calm yourself and those around you. I think you used the example of Moxie the bulldog. Uh-huh.
1: Uh-huh. He was, oh gosh, that was my best dog ever. <laughs> he, um, in a book I wrote, uh, about one moment when, uh, um, we had a little, when my daughter was just a baby and, uh, my goodness, a moment of sleep was treasured above anything else. <laughs> it was the most prized possession and it was the middle of the night and she was sleeping and my husband was coming back and he was coming back with uh, um, he's a Freemason, so he was coming back with a bunch of Masons and they were they had cars in our driveway and they were saying their goodbyes and they were, they were leaving and he was coming back in the night and my dog was just going nuts and so um, there was no way for me to calm him on any kind of conscious level. So I really did try to just sink my energy and it was funny because i truly remember it was like a vortex and if i reside in that vortex i was able to pull him in that vortex with me and he was completely mm. calm and the moment i would and i would feel it i would i would actually feel being out of this like vibe energy and once i just had the side of the different vibe the dog started barking and so it, it was hard because if I would correct him, I would pull myself more out of that vortex. So mm. I had to like just go back in and vine, <laughs> get back in, and in this and be able to bring the dog. I actually have five dogs now, so I find it to be a, one of the uh, very dogs are good tools for me personally to know where i stand with my energy dogs are really good they're pack animals if you they make you if you want to be a good leader and like Mm -hmm. good good leader there is nothing better than to have a pack of dogs because if you're not a good leader they're not gonna listen to you right with Mm -hmm. respect they might listen to you with fear but you don't have it with respect and you can't just have it just by yelling at your dogs it's, it's an energy. It's an energy thing that if, when you put yourself in that energy, wave, you can become the leader of the dogs and they can teach you very easily.
0: Very cool. Now to wrap things up, you um, talked about something that I'm very interested in, but you blew by it. What are the five Tibetan rites?
1: Well, five Tibetan rites is um, an ancient exercise. I still do. You know, I try to do every morning. Um, and it's a set of five very simple movements Um, you can very easily go on YouTube or Google them up Uh, there's no patent to them they call them, they're like a youth um, they keep people young forever um, and allow them to do things I find five Tibetan rights to be like a shot of espresso so it's something I don't do past later in the afternoon because it like it wakes me up for about eight hours this set of hmm. exercise exercises and uh yeah it, it had to work if it didn't work it wouldn't survive i think now like four thousand years um, i might be wrong on the amount of times but a time is it's it's a very long time and you can definitely um do them very simple very simple as long as and i actually started the first one sort of spinning Uh, So the first one was harder for me at the beginning because my head was spinning, but um, you can definitely adapt to that and then learn that. And it's something that a lot of old people do as well.
0: Well, I will try to look those up and add those to the show because it just sound very interesting. Now, where can people find you if they want to um, grab your book and see your children's books, share them?
1: Well, all my books are available on Amazon. But uh, if anybody wants to connect a little more and know a little more, they can find me at com. Just my okay.
0: name. Are you on uh, Facebook or Twitter or anything? Yes, else? I'm
1: on Facebook. Facebook is a good platform to catch me. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, and the other ones, I'm not so good about keeping track <laughs> of. I did make for my children's character has uh, one. My character has an Instagram account, but uh, that's just the character's account.
0: Well, excellent. I encourage everyone to look out for you there. And thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Hey, everyone. Eric here. I want to thank you again so much for listening. I know your time is valuable, so I really appreciate you taking some. If you like what you hear, please spread the word. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Unstructured P, as in podcast. Also, you can review the podcast in whichever app you use. It really helps a bunch to spread the word. Thanks again. Now, tonight's adventure into the unknown.
2: Shut up and sit down. It's Sarge and Frenzy
0: from the Sarge Approved podcast. Uh, If you're not familiar, the Sarge Approved podcast has a guest every episode
2: featuring uh, people like actors,
0: comedians,
2: uh, survival experts, authors, martial arts experts,
0: basically a whole gamut of
2: badass people. Yes. And you can check out all our episodes on all the podcast platforms, iTunes, iTunes, Spreaker uh, Stitcher Google Play Music iHeartRadio. Radio um, you yeah. can check us out on all our social media Facebook Instagram, Twitter, all the things It's all at SARS Approved Yep Check it out and we hope you enjoy it Bye